once we learned that the mission had even occurred, that news alone is what kept the hostages going for those last eight months. We finally knew that we had not been forgotten. We finally learned that something was being done to get us out. We finally understood that America had not forgotten. Because prior to that, our only information was from the Iranians. And it was a matter of us being forgotten. The U.S. government didn't care. Um, you know, we took almost everything the Iranians said with a grain of salt anyway. But this was concrete evidence that our country was doing something in an effort to try to free us. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Yesterday, the head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard entered the grounds of the former U.S. Embassy in Tehran and publicly stomped his feet on an American flag. This is how Iran marked the illegal takeover of the U.S. Embassy on November 4th 1979. While the Iranians were desecrating the American flag and making speeches denouncing our great country, Secure America Now is paying tribute to the courageous Americans who were taken hostage. We are fortunate to be able to talk to the youngest of those hostages, Kevin Hermany. The takeover of the embassy was the beginning of a 40-year war the Islamic Republic of Iran has been conducting against the United States, a war that cost hundreds of Americans their lives. Kevin, I want to thank you for agreeing to share your thoughts on what must be a troublesome anniversary. On behalf of the 3.5 million Americans who are members of Secure America Now, we want to thank you for your service in protecting our homeland. Kevin, why do you think it is important for Americans to learn about this Iranian attack on American territory? Well, first of all, let me thank you for the privilege of joining you this morning and the opportunity to speak with your listeners uh, on this podcast. Certainly, I think today, marking the 40th anniversary of the day that uh, the Iranian uh, revolution extended itself into the compound of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, uh, while I was a young Marine security guard along with uh, dozens of other Americans. Uh, marked the beginning of uh, the extension of uh, the Islamist revolution that uh, still continues to this day uh, in an effort to attack all legitimate governments, uh, the legitimacy of, um, of American foreign policy, uh, people who uh, appreciate and enjoy freedom. Uh, it had never occurred where a U.S. embassy had been overtaken by uh, local um, local opponents or local citizens, uh, foreign nationals. Uh, we, of course, have seen the impact of uh, a failure to act in defense of that, uh, that action. Uh, 
by our president and the country uh, back in 1979 to 1981, as it's extended, of course, over into Benghazi, and uh, uh, it, it occurred in 1979 when the embassy was assaulted in Karachi, Pakistan, and El Salvador, leading to the loss of American marine lives. Uh, it, it has to be remembered because if we don't remember and we don't try to correct the, uh, the challenges and the problems of the past, we're undoubtedly bound to, uh, to see them occur in the future. Kevin, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, during your period of imprisonment in Tehran, your mother made points about how the U.S. government had failed the hostages. I'm not asking you to criticize or not criticize, but what are your views about what occurred on that day? Could America have done things differently? And uh, just your general thoughts about what occurred on that Sunday in Tehran. Well, yes, uh, 40 years ago at almost this exact hour, uh, except for the time change, of course, um, I was actually in the main building of the embassy, the chancellery building, signing documents to extend my tour of assignment there in the country. I loved being in Iran. I loved being a Marine security guard. Um, I was only going to be there for six months, and I extended uh, with papers by an extra or an additional six months my tour. Little did I know that just a few months, uh, a few hours later, the Iranians would uh, involuntarily do that for me. But, uh, you know, when I think about uh, what the U.S. government might have been able to do, uh, first of all, um, it might have uh, been a little bit more serious about trying to get us out uh, earlier than the six months that it was before the failed and uh, aborted rescue mission. I want to talk about that a little bit later on. But um, the Iranians really saw us, and the Ayatollah Khomeini at the time, who was relatively new in his position, just nine months as the supreme leader of the country. And undoubtedly, he, he had a great deal of uh, broad-based support. But I would never suggest and do not believe, even th uh, certainly 40 years later, but even now when I think about current uh, supreme leader uh, Khamenei, that these fellows uh, enjoy broad-based support as in a plurality or a majority of their people. Um, they were clearly uh, supported by the mullahs. They were clearly supported by the young radicalized students uh, who were involved in the taking of the embassy and then ultimately supported by the Iranian government. But our country didn't uh, take it seriously, thinking that it could last, that it would last. Um, and so uh, President Carter was trying to negotiate uh, during the entirety of the time in captivity for all of us. And uh, one might say that uh, I, I have said in interviews and in public speeches over the last 40 years that uh, um, I, I probably owe my life to the fact that President Carter um, chose to negotiate rather than take a hardline stance in getting us out. But candidly, I have always struggled with the idea that a country should put the interests of 52 individuals ahead of the interests of his or her nation. And um, we were seen as a paper tiger as a nation. Uh, President Carter was seen as very weak by the Ayatollah. Uh, the Ayatollah refused to negotiate uh, with him. 
even after the Shah of Iran died. And of course, that was their ultimate motivation, or so they said, in taking over the embassy to begin with. They wanted the Shah of Iran returned to the United States for, I'm sorry, to Iran for a trial, um, because frankly, they just didn't like the fact that he was our ally, uh, the United States ally for 26 years. But I think we should also put the problems of 1979 uh, and, and why the Shah was so important in the context of where we were at that point in time, and that is that we were in the midst of the Cold War and Iran and the Soviet Union shared a 1,600-mile or so long border. And so it was a very critical geopolitical location. Uh, the one thing that the Soviet Union had uh, coveted for decades was a warm water port, and that would have been best uh, seen by their perspective in the Persian Gulf. And so the United States saw it fit to make the Shah of Iran and that entire region very geopolitically important vital and important to us, uh, as it is today, uh, with the exception of the country of Iran. Uh, we, of course, are very much in play in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and Oman and some of the other places there. And so uh, similar objectives, just a little bit different uh, uh, leadership now. You mentioned the uh, attempted, it turned out to be a failed attempt to rescue um, you guys who are being held in captivity against you will. And um, can you um, explain what occurred and what the aftermath of that was in terms of your treatment as a hostage? I, I'd be happy to, actually. Um, no discussion of mine in the last 40 years, uh, no interview, um, including this one, would ever be complete unless I actually mentioned the names of Major Richard Bakke, Major Hal Lewis Jr., Captain Lynn McIntosh, Captain Charles McMillan II, Tech Sergeant Joel Mile, Staff Sergeant Dewey Johnson, Sergeant John D. Harvey, and Corporal Holm, George Holmes, Jr. These three Marines and these uh, five airmen, uh, they are the men who gave all uh, during the hostage crisis. And um, we didn't even know that they had uh, embarked on this mission in April of 1980 until a good month and a half, two months after it had occurred because the Iranians just didn't tell us any of the news that was going on uh, surrounding the hostage crisis. They tried to keep us completely in the dark about events and activities and actual news uh, related to any negotiations. And what we were able to eventually surmise was the timing of late April, April 25th, 1980, being the very day that they, the Iranians had... Um, uh, come into our rooms in the middle of the night. Uh, wasn't the only time they came into our rooms. Others were uh, just equally difficult and challenging. But they put us into small groups and they smuggled smuggled many of us out of the out of the city of Tehran and put us out into the countryside. Uh, Donald Cook and I, one of the other American hostages, we were put into a van and driven 
throughout the middle of the night um, into the early morning hours, about six and a half hours through the mountains of northeastern Iran to a small city called Golgan, where we later learned it was only about 20 miles from the Soviet Union-Afghani border with Iran. And others were put onto airplanes and flown down to southern Iran, others into trucks and driven up to northwestern Iran. And this was all an effort by the Iranians to split us up to make near impossible a successive rescue mission. And uh, I had the amazing privilege a few weeks back of meeting um, a half a dozen of the men who were involved in the rescue mission. And I heard these guys talk about how how, how much of a struggle it has been for 40 years, knowing that the one thing that they had spent such a tremendous time preparing for ended in failure in the desert, 200 miles south of Tehran at a place called Desert One, a staging area with the C-130 transport planes carrying the aircraft fuel and all of the helicopters, not all of which made it to the location, the Desert One site, uh, due to a mechanical failure and a sandstorm. And um, the mission ultimately was decided that they were going to abort the mission. Uh, Colonel Charlie Beckwith, the commander, ultimately was the one who made that call because they just didn't have enough birds to get all the way to Tehran and, and rescue us. Well, these guys had trained for months. Just It was their singular focus uh, that they hoped that they could come to Tehran and get us out. And so they, they watched... Um, they watched this terrible tragedy in which the three Marines and five airmen uh, burned to death in the fiery crash as one of the helicopters collided with the transport planes sitting stationary on the ground. And, um, and then they knew we were still there for another eight months. Yet when I saw these guys a couple of weeks back, I told them that while they may have failed in mission, the effort itself actually had a successful element to it. And that was that once we learned that the mission had even occurred, that news alone is what kept the hostages going for those last eight months. We finally knew that we had not been forgotten. We finally learned that something was being done to get us out. We finally understood that America had not forgotten. Because prior to that, our only information was from the Iranians, and it was a matter of us being forgotten. The U.S. government didn't care. Um, you know, we took almost everything the Iranians said with a grain of salt anyway. But this was concrete evidence that our country was doing something in an effort to try to free us. And so my hat goes off to what I would describe as the real heroes in the hostage crisis. And those were those five airmen and three Marines who selflessly laid down their lives for the off chance that the rest of us might have been able to be free that night. Kevin, that's a beautiful tribute. And I will tell you that Secure America Now has an ongoing program of focusing on veterans those who died, those who are still alive, and paying tribute to them. And we will make a point of keeping alive the memory of these brave Americans who 
were involved in this rescue mission. And thank you. You, This was a very articulate, you just made a very articulate um, recounting of an important piece of history. And um, I will also say that uh, the point that you make about people who are hostages, whether they were Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, um, prison camps, or even Soviet dissidents that I know, who said that when Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, made his evil empire speech, uh, it resonated into the solitary confinement that they were being confined in, in Russia, uh, knowing that others cared about them. And um, that's an extraordinarily important point for our policymakers and our average citizens to keep in mind. Um, one of the things that I came across when I was doing a little background uh, education of myself on you is that uh, you were very uh, disturbed by the Obama administration's uh, deal, nuclear deal with Iran. And I say that because most of the members of Secure America Now came to us during the campaign that we conducted against the Iran nuclear deal. But can you explain to our listeners why that deal was a bad deal? Well, sure. Um, I happen to believe, um, I mean, here we are on the 40th anniversary of the taking of the American embassy in Iran and that makes me 40 years older than I was that Sunday morning in Tehran. I'm 60 years old, and uh, although I was the youngest of all of the American hostages, um, I'm no longer a child. I, I have completed my education. I have been working. I have raised a family. I have lived. I have followed the news. I have uh, become more aware of history. And... Uh, it has occurred to me that um, in any negotiation, you need to have two honest brokers. And the Iranians have not yet sent an honest broker to a negotiation with the United States in more than 40 years now. Uh, they didn't do it in 1979 to 1981 while we were in captivity. And they haven't done it since then. Um, the taking of the U.S. Embassy in 1979 became a perfect diversion for the Ayatollah Khomeini from the challenges and the problems that he, as the leader of the country, was facing. And uh, he was unable to deliver the goods, if you will, from an economic and a social perspective. Um, and so once the American hostages were once the Americans were captured and became hostages, um, we became the perfect foil for all of the problems that he was facing, and he never had to face those. Um, and of course, in 2015, in 2014, in 2013, in 2012, as the Obama administration was trying to get Iran to uh, back down from their pursuit of nuclear weapons, um, they thought that they could go about it as though the Iranians would be interested in negotiating um, 
with a pure heart and a pure objective uh, with the United States when it was just the opposite. I have a, so this was called the Iran nuclear deal, D-E-A-L. Just like the effort to get the American hostages out was called the Algiers Accord, A-C-C-O-R-D-S. Neither of those words are the word treaty. A treaty is something that is made with the support of the United States Senate. The United States Senate supporting the efforts of a president uh, to bring about some kind of an agreement with a foreign power, typically, uh, or multiple powers. A treaty is something that has the widespread support of at least a majority of U.S. senators, which by default make it the support, have support of the American people. Well, President Obama knew that he had no choice than to do what he did was to make it essentially an executive order impacting the world. Um, executive orders are not intended to be things done as a, as a, uh, as a deal with a foreign country. Um, we can say that uh, I've heard it said that President Obama, you know, he had su the support of the European Union. He had the support of many countries around the world in pursuing that nuclear deal. Well, it wasn't exactly something that they really cared all that much about. We know the track record of much of Europe over the years, uh, over the centuries. And um, to them, it was all economics because they know that the Iranian population is very young. They are in the perfect uh, demographic from, for consumerism. And um, that if only we had had a, a relationship with them, uh, as the United States, and if only the European countries could have a relationship with Iran, that these major corporations, and let's face it, uh, um, although we see our own country sliding a little bit towards socialism, um, Europe has a lot of socialism uh, impact uh, impacting their corporations. And um, I just thought it was a bad deal. I thought it was not negotiated in good faith. And in the case of the Iran nuclear deal, it also wasn't negotiated in good faith by our own president, by our own country, because he wasn't willing to get the U.S. Senate involved and make it a treaty. It would never have become law. It would, he, he would never have been able to put uh, billions of dollars of, uh, of currencies on a pallet and send it over to Iran in the middle of the night. Uh, these things just shouldn't happen in a, in a representative republic like the United States. And so... I thought it was a it was it was wrongheaded. I thought that uh, you don't reward the very behavior you're trying to prevent, which is what has happened. Uh, so they, what did we read? What did we hear? What what did the president and the vice president themselves say after 2015? That it will be at least a decade that they will be able to pursue nuclear weapons again. Well, we know that that's not true because once President Trump decided to uh, uh, basically canceled the, 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 the deal a couple of years ago that suddenly the Iranians told us and the uh, IA, the International Atomic Energy Administration uh, came out and announced that the Iranians were only about two and a half to three years away from being able to, uh, uh, to produce nuclear weapons that could be delivered on a warhead. That is not a good policy. You know, it's scary to think that this ideologically motivated regime that considers the United States as the great Satan 
um, is that close to gaining nuclear weapons. And for all the reasons that you stated, we opposed this deal. And, um, and we applauded President Trump for, in a sense, tearing up the deal. Can I just... Can I just share with you uh, a few words that came out of the White House while you were speaking? Um, Forty years ago today, Iranian militants stormed the United States Embassy in Tehran, taking more than 50 American hostages for 444 days. Today, we honor the victims of this brazen act. The Iranian regime continues to target innocent civilians for use as pawns in its failed foreign relations. The Iranian regime has a choice. Instead of being the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, it can put the Iranian people first. It can choose peace over hostage-taking, assassinations, sabotage, maritime, hijacking, and attacks on global oil markets. The United States seeks peace, so we support the Iranian people. It is time for the Iranian regime to do the same. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the Iranian regime has, uh, has been proven to be complicit in IED attacks on American soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, they have continued to foment unrest in Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, uh, to this very day. In fact, um, uh, so much so that it appears even that the Iraqi government is going to call early elections. And uh, um, I look at what's happened in, in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last uh, 17, 18 years, and I wonder, uh, you know, are we going to ultimately conclude that the lives of all of those brave soldiers and Marines and airmen and sailors and Coast Guardsmen and CIA officers, uh, heroes all, uh, that they died in vain. I, I, I pray not that that is the case. But the Iranians continue to, uh, uh, to try to destabilize uh, countries like Yemen through their support of the Houthi rebels. We know that they have been uh, the major financial benefactors, well, certainly one of two behind the Russians, but one of the major benefactors of Bashar al-Assad up in Syria. So the Iranians uh, have been trying to expand their base uh, of, uh, uh, of Islamic fundamentalism for 40 years now. And um, uh, we need a collaborative effort on the part of all nations that are going to continue to be opposed to what they've been doing. So, you know, I think about, all right, this statement from President Trump, um, we've heard similar statements over the last 40 years by other U.S. presidents on anniversaries and, and, and special dates uh, uh, commemorating the hostage-taking, the hostage-release, uh, the failed rescue mission. But where were we in 2009 when the Green Revolution was uh, starting to kick up its heels and there was the possibility that we were finally going to get the Iranian people, not we, the U.S. government, the Iranian people were finally going to get rid of uh, uh, fake President Ahmadinejad. Um, where were we a couple of years later when we had the opportunity to support uh, uh, the student protesters uh, and the, the, the union workers and the university 
students and professors who were trying to, to shake off the yoke of uh, Islamic fundamentalism. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't exactly understand that uh, the Iranians are really the largest group of uh, the Shiite Muslim uh, sect of, uh, of, of the Muslim faith. Um, most of their surrounding, well, all of their surrounding neighbors are of the Sunni faith. And so you have all of that. And let's also remember that Iranians are not Arabs, they are Aryans. And so uh, the Persians have been fighting and trying to conquer for a millennia. And so um, just because we have 24-7 news, just because we have uh, missiles that can reach their sites in a matter of seconds, doesn't mean that anything has changed from the days of uh, the, the true sticks and stones from a millennia ago. Um, Man still corrupted. Um, uh, their leadership is still uh, aggressive, and they see the United States as and our and our population, our people, as being unwilling to step up and and defend our interests around the globe. I'm not talking about by sending our men and women there necessarily, but uh, just the principles on which our own country was founded. Because there are people everywhere who would like to be free someday. Very good analysis. Um, can you just say a word or two about when you were in captivity, you attempted to escape, and um, and I read that you paid a price in terms of being thrown into solitary confinement. Can you just talk about that for a bit? Yeah. Um, so. I would not I would not describe myself as any braver than anybody else there. Um, I would not describe myself as uh, well-versed in the way of uh, diplomacy, for sure. I was a 20-year-old kid from the Midwest who found himself uh, in a very challenging, difficult situation. I was an active young man. I wanted to be out playing sports and, and, and enjoying my time in a foreign country. Uh, just as I had done when I was in uh, Okinawa, Japan, for 15 months and in my first three months in service at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Um, I wanted to get back to, you know, spending time learning the culture and the people and, and the language. Of course, I knew once we were taken captive that, you know, once we got out of there, I wouldn't go back to that in Tehran for sure. But nor did I think that it was going to last for 444 days, and I don't think anybody did, including the Ayatollah and his followers and President Carter and the American people. But I grew so weary of the situation, and I thought that we weren't really that far away from the Canadian or the Australian or the British embassies. Um, perhaps we could, we, a group of two others and I, uh, we could during one of our approximate every two-week journeys across the embassy compound, uh, blindfolded and handcuffed and with a big towel over our head, a big uh, blanket over our heads as we were transported in a van across the compound. The U.S. Embassy compound, by the way, in 1979 was the third largest embassy in the world. It was a 27-acre sprawling compound. And so from the location where we were at the Chancery Building all the way over to the ambassador's residence was quite a drive. And uh, when we were taken over to have a shower one day, um, our plan had been that we would um, get out of the ambassador's residence building, make our way about 
40 yards to the wall of the compound, shimmy up the side of that wall, and about uh, four to six blocks up the street of Tehran, in, in, from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was the location of the uh, other embassies I just mentioned. Well, um, unfortunately for me, uh, when we were taken to the ambassador's residence that particular day in Iran, um, January 30th, 1980, about three months after we were captured, I was ready to go. I was, uh, I had an extra sweater that I had put on. I kind of had hoarded as, as the guard shifts changed. You know, the other guards didn't know what the others had done or what had gone on necessarily. So I had asked, I told one guard that I was cold. I asked another guard, I said, I can't find my socks. I had hid them in a corner uh, under some other things. And I asked for an extra pair of socks. And so um, I had also asked for some extra sheets for my little pad that we had slept on. And I tied knots in that and wrapped it around my body and uh, put that big bulky sweater over it. And um, just in case I was going to be taken to the ambassador's uh, residence bathroom that was up on the second floor, I figured I'd use that to shimmy down to the second, down to the main level and then make my break. Well, unfortunately, um, little did I know that one of the two guys that was involved in planning the escape attempt was actually collaborating with the Iranian guards. Uh, he had, uh, even on day number one, become very frightened. He uh, wanted to um, curry favor with the Iranians. And so every time they took him down to use the bathroom facilities um, in the hallways uh, where we were kept in the main embassy, he was telling the Iranian guards about the planned escape attempt. He would be able to be given fresh vegetables. He would call his girlfriend over at the British embassy. Um, and that was his reward. Uh, I, I had no idea that this was going on. And uh, so when we were taken across the compound that day, put into the ambassador's bathroom, his actual bathroom from his residence, which was actually a safe room, uh, steel floors, steel ceiling, steel walls. Um, big bars on the windows uh, and a, a steel-proof door. And it's his safe room, and there was no way in, no way out. And so I eventually had to open the door, and they came rushing in with broom handles and the butts of their rifles. And after a little bit of, uh, well, I would say, a, a, a small attack as I tried to fend off their uh, their their attacks on me, uh, which ended up happening in the bottom of the uh, in, in in the bathtub itself as they pushed me in and were just wailing on me. Finally, they stopped, and nonetheless, I still spent 43 days in solitary confinement. The size of the room that I was kept in was just five by ten feet, and the first couple of nights, well, the entire time was spent laying on a box spring of a bed and the first two nights were spent blindfolded and handcuffed and I'm sorry you cannot sleep when you're hand oh, handcuffed behind my back you can't sleep that way very well and so uh, at the end of that six weeks in one day finally I found some relief where they took me out of the room and they put me in a room with a, a guy who became a friend of mine I knew him prior to that he was the regional security officer Alan Golasinski who by the way was the very first American captured and I was the second to the last American captured uh, back on November 4th, 1979. 
But he and I, we were roommates then together until the failed rescue mission, at which point we were all scattered around the country, as I mentioned earlier. Well, Kevin, uh, once again, I want to thank you for your service, but also for bringing people up to speed, not only about what happened, but what is happening currently. You're, you're extremely articulate and very knowledgeable. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Is there anything, any last message that you would like to leave with our audience? You know, um, we all know about uh, the days when men like Senator John McCain and others who were in POW camps and fought in Vietnam uh, went back to Vietnam. And um, wouldn't it be a glorious day when the situation had changed so much in Iran that that the Americans who were held for 444 days felt that it was a safe environment to return to. Um, because that would mean that the Iranian people um, had finally been freed from the yoke of Islamic fundamentalism. It would finally mean that uh, we didn't, our young students who decided to um, unwisely venture into parts of the world that maybe were a little too close to the country of Iran. Um, remember the hikers a few years ago, that they would be feeling safe um, about being in that general vicinity, uh, that uh, our journalists could uh, cover real news without the fear of being in prison like the Washington Post reporter a few years ago, um, that these folks, um, that, that this country would, would fundamentally change and uh, would be returned to become, become part of the community of nations once again. Um, it doesn't look like that is in the short term on the horizon. I know that President Trump, uh, I know this for a fact. I've heard it from the words. I, 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 I've met with Secretary Pompeo face to face, and I know the current administration would really like to see some kind of regime change. But I hope that any regime change that happens comes from within and that we can provide some kind of support. Um, the Algiers Accords that resulted in the release of the hostages did some amazing things. First of all, it paid the Iranians $9 billion in currency and gold bullion um, for the release of the hostages. It uh, barred the United States government from interfering in the internal affairs of Iran in the future. It um, required that the U.S. Uh, apologize for having supported the Shah for 26 years and it barred the American hostages from any kind of claims against the Iranian people. Well, what's interesting to me is that um, the U.S. State Department, seven different times in the last 40 years, went to court to defend Iran against the claims of some of my colleagues and I when we've tried to seek redress against the Iranians. And um, it comes back to that comment I made earlier about an agreement uh, is not the same as a treaty, a deal is not the same as a treaty, and an accord is not the same as a treaty. Um, two dozen of my colleagues have passed away in the last 40 years. The eldest hostage was Bob Odie. He was 65 when we were captured. So, of course, he's been deceased a long time. The ambassador, Bruce Langen, just died in August of this year at the age of 96. And so um, there are a lot of my colleagues who are facing medical issues, and um, challenges and the children of some of the American hostages. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had no children. I didn't have a wife. Marine security guards aren't allowed to. 
So I was able to bounce back, I think, a lot faster and easier than some, several of my older colleagues, especially the State Department folks who didn't have some of the same training as the military men and women who were there. And so um, I just mostly want to remind people that, um, you know, not every country, not every government around the world sees the world through the same lens that we do, that uh, people are generally good-natured and are good-hearted and are well-intended, because that is not the case, especially with our adversaries like Iran in other countries around the world. And um, there are men and women still struggling with challenges based on those 444 days in captivity. The men who uh, and the men who uh, survived the failed rescue mission um, continue to face some physical and, and, and psychological challenges occasionally. And um, let us not forget ever those uh, eight men who perished who were the real heroes in the hostage crisis. Really appreciate the opportunity to have joined you today. Well, Kevin, uh, once again, thank you. That's an excellent note uh, to end this conversation. And we will continue to keep Americans informed. I have been personally involved with people who have been wronged by the Iranian regime where the U.S. government has been the one who has been defending the Iranian regime over the legitimate uh, gripes of individuals who are victims of their terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. So I know exactly what you're talking about. We will keep this battle going. I invite you to join us at any time that you would like to, if you have any specific messages to send. And once again, thank you for your service. Thank you for this podcast. And uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you very much. My last comment would be I really want to extend a great degree of appreciation for all of your listeners um, who are old enough to have remembered the time we were in captivity for their prayers, their thoughts, and their letters of welcome home once we returned. It meant a great deal to all of us. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org. Don't miss a single Code Red podcast. Subscribe today on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. You can also find the Code Red podcast on YouTube.